Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. More and more of you are doing so, and we appreciate that. We talked today out of the gate about a study documenting that COVID attacks fat cells. Um, Wait a minute. Are you sure? I thought we were all in this together and that we were all at equal risk for COVID-19. What? That's not true? Yeah, comorbidities factor in and our health factors in. And even if, even if the most important thing you can do now is be vaccinated against COVID-19, your risk factors are your risk factors. We talk about that and whether the messaging has been way, way off on things like that as we've come along these last 21 months. We talked to Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. Karen Vates, a mom from New York City, who says enough is enough. We are not prioritizing kids. We are not prioritizing education. I, for one, in full agreement. Lots coming up on Toronto Today for the Thursday, December 9th edition. It begins right now. Let me start here with uh, COVID and Omicron and all that stuff. You know that stuff. I'm going to get to the very latest. There's a good clip from Dr. Scott Gottlieb that tells you that Christmas is probably safer than you may have thought, but he's not quite sure about late January, early February, and I'll lay out some of what I'm going to mention about that in a minute or two. The New York Times put this out yesterday. New York Times has been actually, they've been having a great week with with exploring not just theories, but bringing data to sort of, you know, quell the masses, calm people down. I know there's people like coronaphobia is a thing. It just is. I'm taking it seriously, but I'm also not panicked and hysterical. And this isn't a war of the worlds. Okay. Tom Cruise isn't looking for his kids for your, your older demo. Uh, you know, HG Wells isn't scaring you on a record album, whatever. Uh, but yeah, coronaphobia, a thing. Here's the headline. And boy, you won't, if you've been paying attention at all and you've been risk mitigating and being as i've said your own chief medical officer of health which you should have been doing ages ago you're the only one that's got your best interests at heart you're the only one and i'm not telling you that from time to time it bears checking in with what public health officials are saying it bears checking in to see what politicians are going to have in mind for you but who knows best who you are you do Who's got your best interests at heart? You do. Okay? That's the one thing we've seen. This isn't about, I'm not a tinfoil hat guy. I'm not a, I'm not a rearview mirror guy. You see, they said this in a, I'm not like that. But I will tell you that you know this as well as I do, that there's oftentimes uh, corona advice and, and risk mitigation advice and uh, decisions that have been politicized and pulled out. We talked about it with uh, the clip we played on yesterday's show, and I wasn't sure that it was the right thing to play. I'm more convinced now, based on people's reaction to it, because it calms them down. The hysterical Peter Uni, we played that clip of him from two days ago uh, doing an interview with the CBC's Heather Hiscox, where he basically said, "Don't. this is not the time to get together, in essence, with anybody uh, this holiday season. Wait until next summer. And I talked to a couple couple uh, experts about that, a couple epidemiologists in the field, and they said, well, yeah, like, there's something that he's right about. You can't just, yeah, you, you can't just throw the doors open and have a 100-person Christmas party or even a 40-person Christmas party in an old house and, and all that. There have been outbreaks from parties going on, um, especially in the United Kingdom. We have to exercise more caution than maybe a while ago, but the messaging is vital. 
Give people instructions about rapid tests. Tell them where to go and what not to do. Wait until summer, okay, for kids, for the elderly, to see grandparents. It's panic-inducing, and it's going to get dismissed out of hand. You lose the room with that kind of shrill run-through-the-streets-because-aliens-are-invading messaging. I don't make those rules, but I know that's how the message lands with people who are done with COVID. I'm not done. I'm talking about it. I'm not going to spend as much time on the show today as I did yesterday on it. Some days are going to, we're going to go deeper than others because we've got data and new stuff that you kind of need to know. So we can't be done with it. But the tone, that the uni tone, the chastisement, so bad. It destroys the soul. And that still matters. Your soul matters. Okay? As much as whether you're wearing a mask or not or where you're going, indoor, outdoor, this and that. So everybody should have their own level of comfort with uh, how cautious they're being. And yeah, consider reducing what you might be doing. But don't cancel Christmas. Don't unbook things that you've already booked that you know yourself are sensible. We can't give arbitrary dates. Like, put it this way. Ford and Elliot get hammered when they do that. They give, here's an arbitrary date when vaccine passports expire. Here's the arbitrary date when no more masks will be worn indoors. Well, they get hammered when they do that. Some people like the sound of it. Oh, this is when it all ends. How's that been going for you so far? Oh, when you get vaccinated, your danger's over. Well, you know, you can still feel that way. I still feel a good chunk of that. And yet I'll go get the booster shot because I think it's a sensible thing to do. And any extra sleep I get at night's a good thing. But you can't then hammer Ford and Elliot and have a politically influenced science table head yell out, wait for summer, don't do it. You can't have that. We don't have a clue what January looks like. And I'll play this clip from Dr. Gottlieb in a bit that lays that out. A guy who's sensible and has an approach that isn't about fear-mongering. That FM word there. This is a way to do things properly and safely. I'm hosting my sisters and their four kids for Christmas and their husbands. Fully vaxxed, some boost, boosted, recent tests. There's a way, but Dr. Uni says there isn't. I say there is. Um, let me get to this, uh, because one of the information things from the New York Times I was going to mention from this article, here's the headline. The coronavirus attacks fat tissue, scientists find. The research may help explain why people who are overweight and obese have been at higher risk of severe illness and death from COVID. You don't say. You don't say. Who would have? Who knew in, by the summer of 2020 that this was the case? Well, Raise your hand, because a lot of you did. A lot of you who listened knew that that was the case. And all that was being asked for by people like me, and all that was being asked for by people, um, I think, in the know, that are just looking for some element of objective, non-politicized, reading-the-room-properly advice, was something like this. COVID targets people carrying extra weight. COVID targets people with comorbidities. Do you hear that very often from public health? No. Do you hear that much? Uh, and boy, did she have a day yesterday. Do you hear that from Ontario's health minister, Ms. Christine Elliott? No. No. If you're overweight or obese, you're more likely to develop severe COVID-19. You're more likely to die. That's not what the data says. Do you want the opinion or do you want to just feel good that we're all in this together and everybody's at equal risk? What do you want out of this? Because it's not practical. 
if I find if if a doctor finds that I've got some kind of angioplast and I'm that's why I've got chest pains and it's not just you know yelling a lot on the radio from time to time we won't yell very much this morning I'm yelling now probably but but if if I go in and the doctor finds something should the doctor be like I don't want to spoil his day (laughs) we've got we're 22 months into this honesty transparency give me this give me the scoop doc am I going to live or die patients who have had health conditions like diabetes that compounds your risk wouldn't that be awesome to have everybody in line saying these are the health concerns you've got? You know where they've done a better job of that? You know where they have? The United States of America. But Greg, all these people have died. Mm-hmm. I know. You can't make them understand the conditions that they should uh, um, you know, walk, walk, the, walk their world by. You can't force them into avoiding large gatherings. You can't be that heavy-handed. But researchers researchers found COVID infects fat cells, certain immune cells, and there's a damaging response in the body. We knew this. We knew this. Doctors would say this privately. Some would come on the radio. Some would come on with me and say exactly that. Was this about feelings for 22 months? Feelings ain't getting us out of this. Virtue signaling ain't getting us out of this. Being tired of COVID ain't getting us out of this. Okay. I think we get it now, but you can imagine in the United States, do they have a high obesity rate or a low obesity rate compared to the rest of the world? You already know the answer to that. More American adults are overweight than not. Okay. Uh, By the way, who has higher obesity rates and some of this isn't their fault as individuals and that could have been documented? Native American people, Hispanic people, black people. They have higher obesity rates than white adults and Asian Americans. We got to figure out why that is. We got to fix some elements of that system. And why have they been disproportionately affected by the pandemic? Do you think it's random? Do you think it's chance? It isn't. It would have been awesome to know these things well in advance. Speaking of COVID and where it's going, Dr. Scott Gottlieb was on Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble pod yesterday. Andy Slavitt used to be a Joe Biden's COVID czar. Again, Joe Biden stepped up and, and their administration post-Trump has stepped up and said, hey, COVID's dangerous for everybody. But here's who it's really dangerous for. Older people, comorbidities, uh, diabetes, immunocompromised, recent surgeries. We haven't done that in Canada. We're just all washing our hands and staying six feet away from each other. Seriously. Seriously. We just had to, Dr. Teresa Tam acknowledge an airborne virus exists three weeks ago, and we applauded. We're like, yeah, she gets it. Fantastic. Really helpful information that we all could have used last spring, the summer before, the fall before, and on and on. Dr. Gottlieb said this. He's thinking, speaking of those Christmas holiday parties, that Omicron's here. And Omicron's going to sort of take hold and become the dominant strain. The good news is, the still very good news is, that we've been talking about this week, and we talked about it last week, all indications are, and they're growing, because more data has been done, more research has been done, more smart people are saying so, Omicron is not going to be as harmful as Delta has been. But he noted it took Delta a long time to take hold. So given that Christmas is 16 days away, I think Dr. Gottlieb lays out a pretty good case for why Omicron's not going to be here, there, and everywhere uh, anytime soon. Look, first of all, if you look at B117 and Delta, the time from epidemic in another country to epidemic in some region in the U.S., because you're right, these didn't become confluent epidemics in the U.S., they became regional epidemics, was three months. 
Um, that was the same, that was what we saw with B117. That's what we saw with Delta. There's some argue some argue that this could be more rapid because of you know greater transmissibility. But on the other hand, we have better testing in place, better tracking, tracing, mitigation. So it could be slower too. So I think that if this is going to become epidemic in some region in the U.S., it's two to three months away. Yeah, so that makes a difference, right? It makes a difference for your holiday plans. I feel like it does. I know we're going to be sitting out here uh, understanding and watching really, really closely, really closely about COVID cases, which are going to, to me, they're going to pop significantly. And I know there's more schools in outbreak today. If we're going to count every single case and we're not going to use rapid tests, I don't mind them uh, saying a school's an outbreak and sending kids home. But they should be back the next day, especially if they're fully vaccinated in high school, especially if they can show a negative test and they should be walking right through those hallways again. We're still sending kids home for seven to 14 days who are my kid got sent home last week, seven days, seven school days that he missed because somebody in his class happened to pop positive with a test. This is going to happen a lot more frequently as the virus spreads. You're either going to be vaccinated or you're not. But the virus has either hit you or it's going to hit you if you think you've hidden from it for 22 months uh absolutely incorrect our next guest uh we love having him on our show and we watch his show quite frequently the agenda on television uh on television ontario on tv ontario let's extrapolate the name out just for more confusing uh, purposes uh he is the host of the agenda eight and eleven o'clock if you missed the early version you get it uh repackaged at eleven o'clock steve pakin it's great to have you on uh thank now by the way we'll get to your tie cats as well what are we go- what kind of throwback are we going with saturday uh sunday rocky di pietro Ben Zambiazzi, where are we going with that, Steve? What kind of jersey are we rocking on Sunday? I was going to say I'm deeply impressed that you were able to pull those names out of your back pocket like that, but that's not really all that far back. Can we say Bernie Filoni or John Barrow or Vince Mazza or something like that? I mean, if we're going to go, let's go. Come on, Greg. I suppose. I suppose. Well, we could go. I, I thought about kickers, too. We used to know all the kickers, right? They'd list these scoring leaders in the league in the newspaper, and um, shockingly, the scoring leaders were always the nine starting kickers for each team because of all the <laughs> all the root. So we could go Bernie Ruoff, or we could go the big, like Andrew Sishin. That, that's a more oh, costly no, no. jersey if you're paying by the letter, too. We realize yeah, that. You, you see, once again, you're not going far enough back. Let, let's, let's talk easy. <laughs> And Sunter. Let's talk Tommy Joe Coffee. Come on. Let's go back. If we're going back, let's go back. We just we did a story. We do a segment called What Happened When Before Seven, and we go back in time on, on this date in history. And the Grey Cup happened today in 1993 in Sarnia, where the, uh, the uh, Toronto Argonauts beat the Sarnia Imperials 4-3 in front of 2,700 enthralled fans during the middle of the Great Depression. I can't imagine what it would have been like to see that game. Oh, well, I can tell you, I was there, and uh, <laughs> I, I covered it for uh, the predecessor show to the agenda, uh, which was called the Dirty Thirties, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a really, despite the, the low score, it was a very interesting game. You and, uh, you and uh, yeah, you, you and uh, several others uh, who have, who've come before you uh, drove up in your, uh, in your Studebaker, I, I think. Now, I, <laughs> I, I do have to be honest, I actually did not cover that game, but, but I did attend the last time the Ticats hosted a Grey Cup, which was in 1972, it was December third, I think, nineteen seventy-two. Yeah, and the Ticats did beat Saskatchewan Roughriders thirteen to ten, and that ga- and and I've been waiting forty-nine years for the Ticats to be able to host another Grey Cup, and finally, it's happening Sunday. And yes, I will be there, and I'll be going to the game with the same kid that I went to the game with forty-nine years ago. We're going again. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Now, I I, I was looking up um. 
teams that have hosted and been able to play in their own Grey Cup. It finally happened in the Super Bowl last, Super Bowl last year with Tampa Bay. It had been forever uh, for the Super Bowl, 54 years now, and, and nobody had ever done it. But the Calgary Stampeders have never done it, and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have never been in their own Grey Cup. Now, Calgary's, I was shocked. They've only hosted it five times. We've on, No wonder everybody hates us. Ontario keeps this monopoly on so much, Steve. We've got the only MLB team, the only NBA team, and it felt like we were keeping the Grey Cup from going out west frequently. And Montreal has had their share also at the Big O, of course. Oh, so are you saying we should move the Leafs to Hamilton? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible that that is indeed uh, the case. I was shocked when I read your column. I thought you had a great column about John Tory, and it raises some some real interesting thoughts. I was shocked that we've never had sort of a longer-serving uh, Toronto mayor. We've never had a mayor go a decade. And you think about other North American cities, like New York's our, our best comparable, and Ed Koch was mayor 12 years there, and Michael Bloomberg was mayor 12 or 13 years. It's amazing that we've never, you know, we've never had a, a man or woman just hold the Ford for like 14, 15 years. Well, we've had one, just one, and that was Art Eggleton, who went from 1980 to 1991. But you're quite right when we think of sort of the iconic mayors of Toronto, Nathan Phillips, after whom the square was named, uh, he only did five years. David Crombie, the tiny perfect mayor, he did five years. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason was, of course, that uh, for the longest time, the term was just one year, and then the term was two years, and then the term was three years. And it was only more recently that they extended the term to a full four-year term, like with the provincial government or the federal government, for example. And so now, you know, to do, to do 12 years... A couple of decades ago or a few decades ago, you would have had to win, you know, four or five elections in a row, which was, well, it's hard to do. Uh, John Tory, if he runs and wins and serves the full term, because it's a four-year term, he'd be at 12 years by the end of the term, and that would be the longest-serving mayor in Toronto history. A lot of is mm-hmm. there, long way to go before we get there, but that's out there for him. Steve Pakin's joining us, uh, host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin on TV Ontario. Um, there doesn't strike me, there's just an obvious name as a uh, as a competitor to uh, challenge. Now, of course, people may be waiting to see if Tory announces. That may be a big factor right there. That often happens with, um, you know, whoever's out of office in uh, in the United States. You sort of watch, uh, you know, watch how the breeze blows for a Democratic primary contender or Republican primary contender. But, but here, um, there just isn't that obvious name. Is there one that leaps off the page into your brain? Not one, but yeah. there are several. And that's why uh, I, I think the headline on the piece was waiting for Tory. Everybody's waiting to see what John Tory's going to do, because that will set off a whole range of dominoes that will fall after that. If he decides he's going to run again and seek another term, I don't imagine anybody of significance is going to challenge him because he's, his approval rating is too high. The ability for him to win is just there. And unless somebody wants to run basically, you know, a, a mission where they're just running for the heck of running, uh, I don't think anybody would. However, if he decides to stand down, well, that changes everything, right? There's a whole bunch of people on the current city council who will kick the tires. There will probably be some people from outside city council uh, who will take a look at it. And that really opens up the field a great deal. And, of course, if city councillors run for it, that opens up city council seats, which means you'd get some changes on council as well. So everybody's waiting on Tory to see what he's going to do. And he's told friends, I'm told, he's told friends that he will announce one way or another this month because he knows everybody's waiting. You don't actually have to get your papers filed until May. And, you know, he doesn't want mm-hmm. it to drag out for that long. He wants to sell this once and for all in December. So we'll wait.
it seemed to work for him when he was elected in 2014 as, as well documented because because he wasn't Rob Ford and any of Rob Ford's supporters, although Tory was just a well-known name, right? The media, Rogers, even the CFL, we were just talking about it. So mm-hmm. he, he, you know, he was a recognizable name and face and no one could question this. He's a personable, warm man and his work ethic is unchallenged. That's the one thing, even when you disagree with policy, um, you, you, you can't argue the hours he puts in and the time he puts in. But I wonder if that's sort of calming of the waters, which I think Toronto may have needed post Rob Ford. Even Rob Ford's biggest supporter said it's it's gotten really out of order and and chaotic with everything that was happening. And then unfortunately the, the cancer diagnosis. Does that still work for John Tory that it just feels like he's just a, he's a guy that, you know, I'll use a football analogy, comes to the line of scrimmage, gets the crowd to settle down, and then he can call his plays. You know, I think you could make a pretty strong argument that that's still relevant in an era of COVID. Uh, to be sure that when he ran for re-election three and a half years ago, he did not expect to, to have to deal with a global pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in 100 years. So to have a steady hand at the tiller, as he's often described, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, not a bad thing at a time like this. Uh, is the mayor the most exciting man we've ever had in office? Well, no, he's probably not. You know, have, have, have everybody agreed with all of his policy uh, prescriptions all the time? Well, no, they surely haven't. But, you know, uh, all things in balance... And that's what he would tell you, you know, all things in balance. Uh, he's got an approval rating north of 60 percent. And I can only think of, oh, I don't know, maybe a thousand other politicians in the country who'd give their IT for that kind of number. So there you go. Yeah, they, they, they sure would. Um, you, you write a couple things that I think are, are prescient. You write that he's yeah, he's sort of calmed the, the, the waters a little bit. Tory has restored sanity and dignity to the mayor's office. I agree with that. Um, you write he's received positive marks for his handling of the COVID-19 crisis. I'd agree with that, too. But something even that happens in, you know, our business sometimes leverage. He doesn't have a lot of leverage with the province. A lot of mayors have realized this, whether it's been Patrick Brown or Ed Holder in London. Like there's during COVID, you're kind of um, you're a little bit of a of a prisoner to what the province wants to um, inflict on you or or open up on you. Can I make that case? I think you sure can. And and I mean, the fact of the matter is, and we hear this all the time, you know, according to our Constitution, the, the cities and towns of this province are, quote unquote, creatures of the province. Right. Mm-hmm. They are created by the province, and the province has almost all the power. And basically, what, what powers do the municipalities have? They have the powers of persuasion, and that's all. Uh, once the COVID-19 crisis started, and the mayor realized that people weren't going to be able to afford to pay their property taxes, and the revenues for the Toronto Transit Commission declined 80%, and yet we still needed the TTC to operate to get all the people, the healthcare workers, firefighters, police officers, etc., we needed to get them to their jobs to help us during this thing. So what could Tory do at that point? He could try to use his powers of persuasion. And he did. He managed to get the provincial government, Doug Ford, with whom he'd had a pretty bad relationship in the past. He managed to, to really repair things to a point where the two of them got along well. They communicated frequently. They communicated effectively and well. And uh, mm. Mr. Tory was able to get the money for the city that it needed to get through the worst of this thing. So, yeah, that was helpful. It's a weird one, too, because like you said, you, you know, not everyone's agreed with every policy. A couple things flared up. The, uh, you know, the clear out of an of encampments uh, was seen as a as a problem this summer. Um, some of, of, you know, when we have uh, crime in the city. Um, but I, yeah, I look and I go some municipalities like some of it has to come from federal help, provincial help. And I just don't think I don't know if Toronto voters can look at somebody and say there's someone who's been there, done that. Because because they just haven't unless someone who's been mayor previously or someone wants to, 
you know, jump back, if you will, Steve, from provincial politics, a known name. But oftentimes they don't do that. We don't we don't see former MPPs or party leaders come back to a city and say, I want to be mayor. It happens a lot more in the states than it does here. Yeah, it's pretty rare here. The one name I'll tell you this, Greg, the one name. And it's funny, we were talking CFL earlier. When I, I asked somebody the other day on Toronto City Council, I said, who's who's not on council who could come out of nowhere and potentially be a good challenger for mayor? And the name I heard was Pinball Clemens. Now, Pinball Clemens is, is uh, I think it's fair to say, even as a good Ticat supporter, I would say this, he is truly beloved yeah. uh, in the city of Toronto. And in fact, he's the only person affiliated with the Argonauts who I remember got a big ovation when he was announced as being in the crowd in <laughs> Hamilton at well, Portland's Field. So, uh, you know, now, would Pinball be interested in going into politics? He's, uh, he's flirted with it in the past. He's never done it. I don't know yet if he's even a Canadian citizen. I'd want to know that. And I'm not even sure he lives in the city of Toronto. I think he lives outside of the city of Toronto. So those would be stumbling blocks to his running. But you want to talk name recognition and whether he's loved? I don't think those would be a problem at all for him. And he hasn't surfaced in any uh, Ticats fan videos from Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so that's a positive, Steve. I, I think there's a couple other Argos uh, personnel that, that can't run for office, I think, anytime soon based on some oh, of the boy. videos. I'll say that. What a mess that was, eh? Oh, my um, gosh. What a mess that was. Hey, en- enjoy the game Sunday. You're going to have a blast. I'm glad you're going with uh, with people close to you. You'll see the Arkells at halftime. And, yeah, fingers crossed. I'm a, I'm a you know, boyhood. Uh, Tom Clements, Dieter Brock, I, I was okay with that trade. Uh, it was amazing watching the great Dieter Brock become a Ticat after burning us in Winnipeg all those years. So uh, I hope it goes well on Sunday. Enjoy the day. And it's just the, the CFL shutting down for last year. It's just great to have it back. It'll be great to have that happen in, uh, in the Steel City. One last word, Greg. Yeah. Oski wee wee. I knew that. Yes. I can't spell it, but we can <laughs> we can say it even this early. Thank you so much, Steve, for the time. Great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Steve Pakin uh, from TV Ontario. You can read his uh, column at tvo.org. And so last night is my uh, youngest son's grade nine orientation. And I remember it like it was yesterday. We didn't get to do cool stuff like that. You just went to grade nine in 1986 like I did. And you're like, I just hope somebody doesn't throw me in a locker in the first two weeks. You didn't know what was going to happen. You just you stayed quiet and, and kept your head down. And all, by the way, every girl uh, in grade 12 uh, looked like they were like 26. That's a feeling that every 14 year old boy experiences. It just is. Now, so we've come a long way in terms of not stuffing kids in lockers. Fine. But my oldest kid goes to an orientation. He gets to visit the classrooms and he sees this and that. And it's a great experience. They are walking on cloud nine after that. But last night was virtual. So um, the irony is my kid goes and has a 90 minute soccer practice uh, in a, you know, in a dome bubble after his grade nine online orientation because we can't find a way either with full vaccination. He's fully vaccinated, by the way, or with rapid tests or with contact tracing or any way possible to have kids come through the school that they're going to be in, by the way. Um, you know, 40 hours a week uh, in about, you know, nine months. We can't find a way to get them in the building for 20 minutes. We can't do that. But they can go anywhere now. They can go to movie theater, concert, Raptors game, Leafs game, all that stuff. Then when that session's over, the school that he's going to go to announces they're in outbreak. And now my grade 10 will be at home until January 3rd because there's only, what, seven school days left. But they've got five positive cases. Are those positive cases among fully vaccinated, healthy, asymptomatic kids? We'll never know. 
and that's where we're at right now. Karen Vates is a New York City mom and education entrepreneur, and I'm really uh, pleased and privileged that she's joining us here in Toronto. It's great to have you on. I'm sure my story echoes with parents that you talk to constantly. The learning loss has been a thing. We've made so many mistakes, and Karen, to me, I'm sure it's your case as well. We're operating schools with rules from, I don't know, June of 2020, not December of 2021. This is so true. Um, Thank you for having me on. It's really a pleasure to connect with uh, parents that are grappling with many of these same concerns that we've effectively returned normalcy for adults um, in virtually every arena Rightly so. We're, we're post-vaccination. Um, hospitalizations are, are low in almost all regions. And yet our kids in so many regions in the U.S. and Canada are living as if, uh, as if none of that is true. And here we are with the lowest risk population. You know, the great blessing of COVID is that our kids are less affected. Um, and, and, you know, thank goodness for that. But we, we certainly are not acting like it, have not been acting like it. And we're seeing in the U.S. growing parent angst about that right down to it's been affecting our most recent election. So um, very happy to talk about how we, how we as a society move to normalcy for the for our, our most vulnerable. Well, I'm glad I came across you. It's a it's a circle, and uh, as you probably know, like me, um, social media can be the absolute worst place on the planet, but sometimes you find uh, people that are like-minded. We had Justin Spiro on the show, uh, a, a guidance counselor who's been very outspoken. He tweeted this last night. There's no situation in which schools should go remote this winter. Every child has vaccine access. Every adult has booster access. Schools provide life-saving services and should never be closed. Frankly, it's upsetting this even has to be said, but it does. And I couldn't agree more. There's no, there's nothing more important to me than those four sentences. You know, heated agreement. Um, you know, right now we are watching as, you know, the U.S. Surgeon General recently sounded the latest alarm of a number of alarms this year about the mental health crisis for children and in particular teenagers um, with this sort of, you know, doubling of hospitalizations many regions are seeing for teens and, you know, 2,000 person waiting lists in other regions for a hospital bed for children that are in mental distress. Um, So there's never been a more important time from, uh, you know, whether we're centering the mental health concerns, whether we're centering learning loss, uh, you know, the the list of reasons for us to put a fine point on the need for schools to be open um, is more urgent at this moment than it may have been ever. Karen Vates is joining us on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Is there an age group you'd look at, Karen, either anecdotally or through data, and you say this age group right now has it the worst? Because I talk to parents, I, like I said, I got a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old, and and I feel my runway ending. I want an element of, of a normal year and a half. I'd sign up for a year, a normal year and a half for my oldest to have in high school to do things, dances, dates, clubs, sports, whatever. I'd sign up for that. But I also hear from parents of four and five-year-olds, and they've got a lot more time left with their kids. Is there a group you look at and, and you just feel the absolute worst for? There are a couple of areas that, you know, watching the data, stand out as the highest vulnerability, uh, you know, cohorts of children. And I don't think we can say that there's a cohort that is not vulnerable. Um, I was just talking with a therapist um, in the U.S. talking about how, you know, in the in the um, children's therapy community, there's much discussion of 
seeing symptoms that used to be symptoms we'd see in teenagers, uh, like pulling out hair and eyelashes as a sign of anxiety. Some of these things that used to kick in in, you know, upper elementary and middle school, and that's where you'd see these signs. They're seeing four- and five-year-olds present with these symptoms of anxiety. Wow. Uh, and so I just don't think we can say anything categorical about, you know, there being areas of kids that are, are out of the risk zone. The three stand out to me. Um, from a mental health perspective, we kept schools closed longest in the aggregate for those upper grades. And the absenteeism that we're seeing in high schoolers is a major red flag, as well as the big teen depression spikes. Um, you know, that's been a kind of middle school and upper grades, and it does seem to be centered in girls. Girls seem to be presenting with the highest jumps um, in, in suicidal tendencies and so forth. So um, look out for your teenagers, in particular your teen girls. And uh, suicide rates have climbed to an alarming degree for black children, and black girls are named um, as the, mm. you know, the cohort with the highest jump. So I think we have to be really thoughtful about which traditionally vulnerable groups of children um, need a focus. And then from an academic perspective, um, I worry really heavily about children between the ages of five and nine who are our early reader cohort, who mm -hmm. do so much school. One thing we know, um, third grade has always been viewed as a pivotal grade in terms of children's literacy, because after third grade, when kids walk into classrooms, the curriculum assumes they can read. So now they're going to do their learning by reading in the sciences and reading history and reading math problems. And there's just a working assumption that kids can successfully read a math problem independently. And that's true for many children, but um, we, we have long struggled with uh, sort of systemic challenges getting kids who aren't successful as readers in third grade to read in later grades. They're just that the interventions haven't necessarily been a, a success area. When we look at reading instruction generally, uh, we pass on too many kids that can't read. So we've always known that if you were a struggling reader in grade three, your risk of dropping out is sixfold another child. Um, so graduation rates can practically be predicted with third grade reading. Um, and here we have groups of children who just haven't, you know, unambiguously, every child missed at least two months of school in that late 2020 window when we closed in mm -hmm. spring 2020. Um, so every child in that cohort has at least a small amount of vulnerability, even children in mm -hmm. states or, or districts that were lucky enough to reopen normally. But of course, the majority of children had a longer-term impact. And so I'd really be encouraging elementary-grade parents to be leaning into any reading concerns, pushing conversations with the school about what needs to be done, looking into... Uh, you know, private services if necessary, if they aren't getting support at the schools, because that's, that's the group I worry about the most from a long-term perspective. A hundred percent. I remember what it was like, you know, reading with your kid and, and even, you know, the, the slightest little hiccup you'd, you'd be focused on and, and you'd be concerned about. I, 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 you know, we're talking with Karen Bates, by the way, New York City mom, education entrepreneur. Um, the, the, the concept of, of saying kids are, there's two things happening here. One is that I think kids will always um, comply. So when I hear from parents, it makes steam kind of out of my ears who say, well, my kid's okay with this and my kid's okay with remote learning. My kid's okay wearing a mask 35 hours a week. Five and six-year-olds um, are, are masked up constantly. They're made to eat lunch without speaking to each other by some principles. 
when when we say kids are resilient, I only have so much time for that argument. Basically, I've got little time for it now. You might have been able to say that for three months. You can't say that going on 600 days now into this. Yeah, and I, you know, my favorite retort to that is when you hear the parents who talk about how resilient their kids are, they are by definition privileged parents. And usually they are privileged in the way that we normally talk about privilege, right? Like you had the resources to support your child and, and get access to activities and or get out of the city and or et cetera, et cetera. But, but it is, you know, if you, we can also talk about luck in this, right? Every child is not going to be affected the same way as parents. Mm-hmm. There's one thing you learn as a parent. It's that all your kids are going to be different and react to things differently. <laughs> but we have massive cohorts of kids that are showing distress. And I think it's noteworthy that the, the awareness of distress is going up so much right now. Um, I do think that we probably have a situation where lots of us, and I, I'll say this about myself too, when those early months of COVID, when it was stressful, I think we were all just trying to power through. Yeah. I have this hunch, and, and I say this with empathy, I have this hunch that a lot of parents that have been just trying to power through as things start to normalize are taking a harder look at their kids and, and seeing things that demand action and or kids are just starting to break after, you know, if you're, if you're 16 and two years of your life has been affected by this in percentage terms, that would feel to a 16 year old, like practically your whole life has just been taken down by COVID, right? Think about kids and how, how time is such a, um, an abstract construct to a little kid. Um, mm. My nine year old, you know, can she really can almost barely talk about a time before COVID. It's just been so present in the share of her lifetime. Right. So um, I, I, I share your sense that we kind of need to like shelve the kids are resilient talk because too many of our kids are showing us that was nonsense. I only have 45 seconds here. We also, I think we got this misunderstanding here that Republicans want schools open and Democrats want schools closed. That's not what I see. If anything, I see uh, you know an extreme reverberation back the other way where there's a lot of people that might lean more left that note everything you said and say, this has been so wrong. We have we have overdone this uh, and, and overcooked either you know hysteria about COVID or we've been myopic about it for five and six-year-olds. I don't see it as a political battle of will. Do you? I don't see it either. Um, I am talking about the U.S. context, but this was, you know, I, I it's felt that like the North American context. Um, I am a lifetime um, left-leaning person. I voted for Biden, and I was in New York City mobilizing with a bunch of fellow Biden voter moms to get schools reopened. The, the yeah. leaders in the faith were all progressives, and I have found that that has been true in communities from Virginia to California, et cetera. Um, wanting Quality schools and supporting children is the most progressive thing out there. So I, I see this as the ultimate bipartisan issue. Karen, what a great pleasure having you on. I hope uh, I hope you have a great holiday season. Maybe we can connect in the new year and, and move the ball along. You're making a difference even by talking to some of our, uh, our parents as listeners today. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Okay, who was Lou Marsh? Well, a athlete, a referee, a sports journalist, born in 1879. Can we find a white man born in 1879 who wasn't a racist? That's for another show. Or meet me in my driveway a little later on this afternoon and I'll uh, when I get up from my nap and, and I bring the compost bin in that's been sitting in the 
on the side of the road for the last two days. But we're going to get there with our next guest. Uh, he hosted the iconic Sportsline show here all throughout Ontario, uh, right here, well, not in this building, but with global television alongside uh, Jim Taddy. Mark Hebsher also has the Hebsey on Sports podcast, an unfiltered look at sports and even mentioned sports broadcasting sometimes. It's apparently no BS, and he gets to say the whole BS word sometimes on his podcast. No one tells him what to do. Mark Hebsher joins me right now. Did I get? Did I sum up that pr- pretty pretty fairly, pretty accurately? You did, but I'm afraid now. I'm afraid to say anything. You got autonomy. I, no, no, no. You got independence and autonomy. You got what every broadcaster no, no. eventually dreams of, every sports, uh, sports jock dreams of. Autonomy and independence, my man. It's true. I have to put a little string around my finger, though, to remind me that I'm on terrestrial radio right now, and I can't do those things. <laughs> you cannot. When you, talk about, when you talk about this award, and you even mention the name Lou Marsh, my blood starts to boil. It, we shouldn't even be mentioning his name. So I mean, how long when did you it? know who Lou Marsh? I mean, look, we've got Con Smythe. People have talked about that. Like I said, it's really hard to find somebody born in the 19th century that we'd hold up to by today's standards. When did you start to have concerns or questions as to whether uh, Lou was some Mr. Marsh was somebody we should have on the, the trophy for Canada's best yearly athlete? Well, I didn't know it at the time, but my grandfather, my late grandfather, told me stories about how they didn't read the Toronto Star because they felt it was anti-Semitic. And so this would have gone back to the days of Lou Marsh and probably some other journalists of the time who regularly put down minorities. And so they didn't advance social issues. These weren't the types of people to say, let's be tolerant and let's be respectful of all cultures. They didn't. And so the more they wrote about these things, the more the general public, the people that read these articles, believed it was not only okay, but acceptable uh, and encouraged even to treat people this way. And if you look back at these writings and say, okay, that's the way it was at the time, that's a bunch of bull. What you have to Mm -hmm. be able to do is, did these people who wrote, did they influence positively their readers? And the answer is no, not by making jokes about Scots and how frugal they were, or Chinese laundry, or Jews, or persons of color, or indigenous persons, who, by the way, Jim uh, 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 Lou Marsh once called Jim Thorpe a, quote, lazy redskin who will do anything for money. Now, you could have substituted anything for yeah. redskin, Jew, black, what, woman, whatever. This is what he did. This is the type of writing he, he made, and a lot of people read it, and a lot of people believe that it was that it was okay to make fun of and to uh, demean uh, persons of color, indigenous persons, etc. Mark Hepsher is our guest on Global News Radio uh, uh, 640 Toronto. So knowing all that, and look, you and I know, and I think everybody, you know, they could teach, they could work in a hospital, they could be a cop, they could work wherever, and they go, they know that, especially now in this day and age, Mark, social media, etc., a lot of people just aren't what they seem. And oftentimes, karma does catch up with them. I'd say 90% of the time it does. And it's a good feeling sometimes when it does, and people are vindicated for what they might have thought about somebody. But Lou was very... It was very out in the open, like you said. This wasn't something that was underneath the surface or a rumor or innuendo about him. He was who he was, and, and this is problematic now. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, for the same people that say, hey, listen, we found this out about Ryerson. We found this out about Dundas. We found this out about Stonewall Jackson. At what point do you say, okay, but let's change the course of history now that we can 
and eliminate these people for the types of people they were, as opposed to when they made the decision to name the award, did they sit back and say, wait a second, what kind of background does this person have? No, of course not. They said, this would be a nice thing to do. And nobody questioned the background of the person because the assumption was that if their name is on an award, they must be some hell of a person. But in fact, what they, he was a hell of a sports writer, I guess. And really, where's that in the grand scheme of things? If you were to say to someone, let's talk about uh, all the great um, features and, and, and the great attributes you have, really, is being a good sports writer really one of them? No. He was a racist. Do you think this is the last year that the trophy will be named the Lou Marsh Trophy? That you've done enough, and and I give you credit because I think you created a groundswell to where uh, you're having conversations with Damian Cox about it, who who helps organize the voting committee. Steve Simmons in the Toronto Sun has written about it. Do you think this is the last year we we recognize Lou Marsh with this honor? I would uh, I would bet the mortgage. I, I bet the farm on this. Well, year. I've seen where you live. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but don't bet mine <laughs> let's be honest i'm really surprised they're even mentioning it this year i'm really surprised that they're, they're even calling it that this year i mean they had enough time to say look let's make a decision on this it looks like the evidence is overwhelming and we mm-hmm. can't uh, continue to uh you know to 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 use the name uh knowing what's out there now but instead they're delaying it which means instead of really celebrating damian warner's uh victory um this year the the subplot is, but are you going to accept it uh, after the things that he had written, what you know? And I think Damian Warner and a lot of other people have probably bitten their tongues over the past few years, knowing what they know about Lou Marsh, what they've done on their own when it comes to research and what they've read recently, and probably said, you know, I'd like to say something, but I, I don't know if I want to. But now they can. I think now they can probably say, you know, maybe I was uncomfortable with that name. I know that Bruce Kidd, who wanted to... Uh, 60 years ago, uh, once he found out, uh, um, did his research on Lou Marsh, he refused to acknowledge that trophy as the Lou Marsh Trophy. He only called it a Canadian Athlete of the Year. But he didn't want to you know, um, start this campaign saying, let's get the name off of the trophy. Yeah. He didn't feel that was his right. But he, he burned deep down because he knew mm. that Marsh was the cause, of, especially of Tom Longboat's uh, later years, the suffering that he felt the indignation that he felt was because of Lou Marsh. Well, I, I applaud what you've done with this. Mark Hebsher joining us, Hebsey on Sports. His podcast uh, is Friday. You can find it on Apple, Apple Podcasts, same as this podcast. Now, you're a great person to ask about the diplomatic boycott by Canada. You uncovered the Lake Placid Olympics in February of 1980. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, with Al Michaels. And a lot of people forget Ken Dryden's right beside him yelling. That's the most excited I've ever heard Ken yeah. Dryden get in, my, in his entire existence. He's usually quite stoic and placid. But... I forgot about this, Mark, that just weeks before Canadian PM Joe Clark announced that Canada would boycott the Olympic Games. I always remembered it as a, as a kid. I remember I felt like that was a little bit after that games. But that, that's why those games in Lake Placid where you were were so fraught with tension because we knew that Jimmy Carter's America, Joe Clark's Canada, all these other countries were going to follow suit and not go to Moscow later that summer. I can't imagine what that atmosphere was like. Uh, it was pretty wild. The other thing, too, is if you recall, uh, Great Britain did go to those games in 1980 in Moscow. So there was a real divide amongst the, you know, the, the, the power nations at the time. Um, you know, in previous years, Canada would follow suit of what the United Kingdom did. That's what they did in 1936. 
The United Kingdom didn't boycott the Berlin Olympics, the Hitler Olympics, so Canada didn't boycott it either. In this case, though, um, um, Joe Clark did follow Jimmy Carter and the Americans by boycotting. So in Lake Placid, there was a lot of talk about, you know, what's going to happen and, uh, you know, are we really going to boycott the Summer Olympics? And some people who had friends that were Summer Olympians um, were concerned that all the training that they had gone through and everything was going to go for naught. A lot of the athletes wanted to go. They yeah. didn't think that the Russian invasion of Afghanistan should prevent them from going to the Olympics. In this case here in China, it's a diplomatic boycott, which I don't know, Greg. I, I don't know. Has there ever been a diplomatic boycott of an Olympic Games? And how did those games turn out? I, I, I've never heard of it. I got, I got 60 seconds. Two really curious answers I'm curious to get from you. Uh, do you think anybody will not watch any any less Olympics because of this. And the second thing is, does this present anything for advertisers? I do think it compromises the CBC in their coverage. I, I and I and a lot of us have probably been there. Okay, everybody's got a boss who's got a boss. Uh, the CBC I already know doesn't put China stories at the top of their newscasts as frequently. I've noticed that. Um, do you think that this causes a dilemma for advertisers? Oh, for sure it does. Because if you're advertising for the Olympics, you're basically saying. You know, we don't believe in the diplomatic boycott or, or we're really not recognizing the boycott. We're there to make money and we know how many eyeballs are going to be watching. So I think it, it, it makes it very difficult. Not, you know, I don't know what I if I'm the CEO of a big company that spends millions of dollars advertising the Olympics, you know, and they're coming to me saying, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, is it okay to say, look, I, it's for the love of sports. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, the atrocities that, uh, you know, that are going on in China, uh, you know, can be dealt with on that level and can affect, um, you know, the Olympics. But let's face it, you know, when they say sports and politics shouldn't mix, I laugh out loud. Come on. We're going on for over 100 years. Well, and, we're you know, we're going to get our soccer team over to Qatar, and this is going to ramp up uh, all over again because we're going to turn the page there, and people are going to go, oh, they do that there? And, yeah, they do, uh, more more than you think. i got to leave it there. I loved having you on. Thanks for doing this, and I think an important uh, work of advocacy on your part. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate that. Mark Hebsher joining us. Uh, you can check out his podcast, Friday's Hebsey on Sports. Okay, I hope everyone, or uh, I hope as many people as possible, saw the video of the uh, Women's Champions League match between Juventus and uh, Chelsea, saw the dude run onto the field, and saw, like, um, one of the players for Chelsea just clock the guy. Like, she didn't punch him, but she she went in, it was like Todd Bertuzzi in his prime. He, like, went in high, elbow to the top of the chest, the dude goes flying. He bounced back up. That was brave of her to do that. Wait, wait. I think a decade ago, some Phillies fans ran on the field in Philadelphia and they tased them. And I thought, yes, this is the way forward. This is the way forward for idiot Jays fans on opening day. Um, idiot. I know when a fan would run on the field at a Buffalo Bills game, often Canadians would get blamed. We're better than that. I don't believe that that was us. But uh, we'll talk about that before uh, 8 o'clock. Uh, joining us now, um, I love his uh, his writing on COVID. I love our chats. Uh, I, I love debating with him. And uh, and I also, by the way, a, a female listener told us that we're both going on trial uh, at some point in time for something. So, Bruce, lawyer up. Like, we're both going to court. I don't even know what we said. I don't even know what we did, but we're going to we're going to be uh we're going to be judged. History will judge you and I. I don't know if we have to get the same lawyer like the Menendez brothers. I have no idea what we need to do. So you make the call. This sounds like bad news, and if it if it's related to any of the emails I get in particular <laughs> veins, 
It's going to be a war crimes trial. Oh, okay, good. Okay. And, and potentially over hate speech, which, guys, read a book. Just read one book. <laughs> well, are you now? Now, you, you, this could be coming for you on all fronts because I see this morning China war, warns nations will pay price for Olympic boycott. And I know you know that I'm telling, I, I'm not going to talk about other papers, but I'll, I will isolate Globe and Mail reporters and Toronto Star columnists. Please leave them alone. Now, like, I don't care. I'm not, I don't know if anyone's going from Winnipeg. I don't want to mention other Toronto papers. That's not right. But, but I just want those two papers. I want some exoneration for, uh, for you guys, for you and my wife. That's all I ask. Well, so I asked David Shoemaker, the CEO of the Canadian Olympic Committee, I think it was early this year, we talked about what he would tell his athletes in terms of speaking out against China in any way, free Hong Kong, free Tibet, whatever you want, the Uyghurs. Um, and he mentioned, and this has stuck with me, he mentioned, well, we're going we're gonna to inform them, we're going to tell them stuff, we're going to mention the Hong Kong security law, and that the Hong Kong security law is the one where if you speak out against China, you can be imprisoned. And I didn't find that to be a terribly helpful or reliable kind of thing. That didn't make me feel better. I don't think it'll be a problem for me or your wife or the journalists there. But on the other hand, I don't know if I've ever gone into an Olympics. And that, this includes Beijing in 2008, which was my first one. I don't know if I've ever gone into an Olympics with, with this authoritarian a vibe. And with this, this much sensitivity to criticism, and that's that's going to create all kinds of interesting collisions. Well, the only athlete, I mean, Brad Marchand doesn't have much of a filter, and he licks people. <laughs> so there's a lot of violations that could potentially the Chinese government could. Uh, by the way, are you? I said this to. I think I uh, you you know uh, uh, Greg Wachinski, Puck Daddy, well, and he and I were uh, were talking last week, and I'm like, what's the? We always ask, right? What's the win? What's the win? What is the win here? I can't. I can't foresee why NHL owners didn't look at all of this in a COVID era. They've had time. COVID didn't just slap us in the face now. They've had time. What What is the benefit of not controlling the venues, the crowds, the ticket prices, the TV, all that stuff? I know it gets lost on the on the schedule in the fall. You and I are sort of Canada Cup kids. We don't remember 72, but we're, we know how special those tournaments were and what they meant in Canada. Do they just go, we, we can't do that? The juice isn't worth the squeeze? We need that worldwide audience? I mean, part of it is the players have wanted to go to the Olympics more than they want to play, for example, the World Cup of Hockey, because it's not the same. Like, the World Cup of Hockey in Toronto was fine. Team North America is what you remember from that. Nobody remembers a lot else about high-level international hockey there. Um, and so, the, basically, the Olympics has, has been the holdup in that the players want that in order to make more of an international calendar. I can see if they could ever get a long-term agreement on playing in the Olympics, then you could get a longer-term agreement on a World Cup every two years, which would give you more regular international hockey, but they just haven't done that. It's amazing to, to, uh, to think of. Bruce Arthur is our guest, uh, the Toronto Star. All right, let's go uh, Omicron. We played a clip uh, from Dr. Scott Gottlieb from the States. I know you wrote about it yesterday. What's real interesting, with all the, the moving parts and theories over the last 12, 13 days, working with the data, especially on the ground in South Africa, look, it's going to become our most dominant variant. Gottlieb made the point that I know people are panicked Christmas time, New Year's time, gatherings here and there, but it may not become dominant. Delta took kind of a long period of time before it started dominating the other variants. It's going to hit us, and we don't know with what severity, but it may not be till mid-January, early February. That was his theory. Is it, does that check out at all with anything uh, you would believe? Uh, it really depends how much of it is here right now, and that seems like a super obvious statement. 
But the, in Denmark, this thing has doubled every two days. In South Africa, it was every four days. Let's assume every four days is approximately right. Just because, like, if you look around, if this thing evades vaccination protection against infection, there are lots of opportunities for it to move in Ontario, for example. Mm-hmm. Restaurants, bars, nightclubs are open, sex clubs, all this stuff. Um, now, if we have 100 right now, that means in four days we'd have 200, and in four more days we would have all of a sudden 400, and four more days after that we're still not to Christmas. We're at 800 cases of just Omicron. Um, now, the, the way it grows depends on how people act and all those things, but we don't know how much we have yet. Like the official province number, I think, was 31 yesterday, but that is there's a lag time on our detection. We don't know how many we actually have. I, I think this thing could happen really fast. And we just don't know when the real acceleration happens, when it goes from 400 to 800 to 1,600 in a week. And that's, that's where the, eventually we're going to hit the gas on this thing. And that's when we really find out what it is. Do you lean more, let's say our chat a week ago, or even you know working a, a, as you were on the weekend or even Monday morning, that we're going to we're going to get a good bounce here in terms of the lack of severity, but everything that we may have believed in principle and and I think the logical people would agree upon in terms of transmissibility is still there, but it's going to spread. It's going to spread like wildfire more than Delta, but we're going to get a break in terms of the severity. Right now, a lot of people are hoping for that, and there are early indications of that, but here are the caveats that I keep hearing. South Africa's average age is about 30. Mm -hmm. Here in Canada, it's 46 or 47. That in itself is higher inherent risk factors for more severe illness. Then you get into, I think the the vaccination number there is about 44%. Um, And then, then you also have previous immunity. There are estimates that in South Africa... It's up to 90 or even 100% of people have had COVID already, which means there is a certain level of immunity circulating in the community. So the good news there is if we're basing all this on South African data and that's true, that means that a level of immunity from vaccination to previous infection, vaccination is preferable, gives you protection against severe illness. But we haven't seen this in a, in a population that looks like ours yet. We ha- Denmark hasn't had enough time. That, that's comparable in terms of vaccination. We haven't had enough time to see how fast it finds the unvaccinated and what it does. So unless Omicron is markedly less severe with the unvaccinated who have not had previous infection, that's where the bad stuff's going to happen. And we have in Ontario, I keep saying this, between 300 and 350,000 50 pluses walking around unvaccinated. And if, if Omicron gets into the unvaccinated parts of Ontario and causes a severe illness at even slightly less of a rate than Delta. Let's say it's, it's, it's something like wild COVID in the first way. It's still going to be a problem for our healthcare system, which is hanging by a thread. And, and guess what? Um, as, as was documented in the New York Times yesterday, and it's something you knew and I knew, you've written about it, I've talked about it. Unfortunately, I just I wish our public health officials had more. The COVID attacks fat tissue, like massively so. And guess what? South Africa is a healthier nation. You point out a younger nation, but also, also a healthier nation than the United States. We're slightly healthy, healthier than the United States. But when we talk obesity, um, the U.S. is that they're the poster men and women. And that's unvaccinated out of shape people, it's going to floor those people potentially. Floor them. Com- comorbidities, right? Right. And, 
I mean, there and we do we do still get stories of people who are perfectly healthy who wind up really sick from this. It, it is this is a tricky disease. We still don't know everything about it. The whole idea of long COVID is Omicron going to cause long COVID when everybody in society gets uh, <laughs> exposed to it within the next three months? Because that's about the timeline. We don't know. And that's that's kind of the scary part about this. I don't like I would prefer if Omicron wound up being a cold in a hat. Right. And e- but yeah. even everyone in society getting a cold within three months is probably problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. But it'd be better than the alternative. I just we need the, the bottom line on this on the data that came out yesterday. Being fully vaccinated is not two shots anymore. It's three. And the lack of urgency from government the lack of urgency on opening up boosters, which I believe will change pretty soon. I think you'll see guidance on 18 plus faster than you'd think. Um, we need to we need to make it really clear that the only way to be fully vaccinated against infection, at least the closest thing that we have, is to have three shots in you. And right now, I believe 6.2% of the province who is eligible for third shot boosters has done it we got a long way to go. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star, our guest. So the guidance, and this is what I struggle with sometimes as well. Uh, sometimes it's common. It's been it's been universal, whether you're 80 or 20, do this, don't do that. And I understand it. Okay, we don't want to split society, to quote uh, our premier. But uh, but I watched, and I, I played the clip. I didn't like it. Um, Dr. Uni's messaging the other day, hey, wait for summer. Don't gather. Listen, I, I worry you make people distrust the vaccinations. I worry. I think the best way forward, and, and I heard... I I private messaged a lot of epidemiologists and said, he's not wrong. There's outbreaks that are alarming. And I agree with that. I wouldn't have 80 people over in a closed environment without knowing their vaccination status. But Bruce, I think we can instruct about rapid tests, where to go, what not to do. Wait until summer is just not messaging. That's panic inducing. That's going to get, you know, this, that they're That's going to get dismissed out of hand by the majority of people, whether it's right or wrong to do so. Yeah, well, the, we have a lot of problems that are kind of colliding here. Like, so the, even the idea that it, we can't put enough boosters in arms. Right now we can put about 100,000 vaccines in arms per day, which is much lower than last summer. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure we can do that because we haven't done that. Let's say that Ontario can do a million in a week. we got 11 million people to boost. So even if everybody shows up, that takes us to late February. To do that, we just don't have the capacity. If we do two million a week, it's still going to take us into the new year. And but what you have is you have a, a populace which has not been alarmed to the idea or educated the idea that they're going to need three doses because this thing moves fast and people are tired. And then you have a lack of capacity, and then you have a government that is really what's the message been from this government? We're doing fine, which we kind of have been, except that now we're an exponential. Well, they tell you, but they tell you we're doing fine even when we're not. We're gonna we're gonna see whether the modeling, uh, you know, is is right before we uh, close this, close that, and the famous Sylvia Jones comment in March and April, and it screwed us. It screwed us for it screwed our whole spring up because of that. Yeah, well, and I really do think if Omicron was nothing, if it didn't exist, the province right now under optimistic scenarios, is on track to be canceling surgery sometime in, in January. And, like, that's, that should be unforgivable. Yeah, yeah. And I know people are tired, and I know this thing wears you out. It's like, again, I tell my kids in wave weather, the water doesn't get tired, but you do. That's us. I understand that. And that's why I, I don't know how, how easy it is for this to turn around, because I don't think we have the communication ability of, in this government 
to properly communicate mm. risk and the necessity of boosters. I don't think we have the uptake. I don't think we have the delivery. And I think we have just enough unvaccinated people walking around Ontario because this province has been soft on vaccination that mm. this thing's going to find them. And the Delta was going to find them anyway, just slower. Yeah. Love our chats, man. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend. Brady, always my pleasure, my friend. Bruce Arthur, uh, Toronto Star. Thanks once again for listening to Toronto Today. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Please do subscribe as uh, we can get it uh, to you every day, pretty early in the morning, as a matter of fact. The best of our morning show, and we're on live tomorrow, on Friday, between 5.30 and 9 a.m. to wrap up the week. Myself, Sheba Siddiqui, Dave Bradley, Gord Rennie, we'd love for you to join us. Thanks again for listening.